In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about multi-tools, we're going to talk about bug nets, we're going to talk about am I ever going to run a course up north? Also going to talk about what do we do with equipment when we're not using it? How do we store it? And where in the world can we go to practice all aspects of bushcraft? Welcome to episode 11 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And the nights are starting to draw in a bit. I um, don't know if you can see on the camera, but you can see my breath here a little bit. I'm recording this in the evening, back down in Sussex again at the moment. It's a lovely time of year. I like being out as summer gives way to autumn or, or fall, whatever your term for this time of year is in the Northern Hemisphere. Absolutely fantastic. I really like this time of year. Anyway, I've got some good questions again coming through. Um, I'm trying to get through them as quickly as possible. I'm still catching up with email questions and I'm gonna hit a load more email questions in this episode. If you've asked questions by Twitter or Instagram recently, do bear with me. I'm gonna get back to those. I'm trying to limit it to five or maybe six questions an episode with five you know, five, six, seven minutes chat about each one. That is long enough for most people, but it, you know, I, I'm tr I can't really make more than one of these a week at the moment. So that's my kind of bottleneck, um, but I'll keep trying to get through them. Keep asking the questions. There's a lot of good questions coming in. So first question from Tyler by email. Um, Tyler asks, hey Paul, well, he says, hey, Paul, big fan of your blog and podcasts. Thank you, Tyler. Much appreciated. Glad you like them. Um, my question is whether you think there is an advantage to carrying a multi-tool with or instead of a knife. Well, Tyler, I think in some circumstances, absolutely yes. And I'm thinking about two functions, really, of multi-tools, which are hard or impossible to replicate with a knife. Um, one is the pliers, they're very, very useful um, in certain circumstances for certain jobs. And the other one is their ability to cut wire as well. So wire cutters, really useful for making snares, um, cutting, um, whether it's small stainless snares for making ptarmigan snares in the north or brass wire for making uh, rabbit and hare snares. I know not everybody's into to snaring, but I teach a broad range of skills and if you wanna be cutting wire, you need some sort of snippers to do that. Um, more generally, the, uh, the plier part, the plier function of a multi-tool is very, very useful for, uh, particularly in winter, for things like um, adjusting snowshoe bindings, if they're, a bit, um, if they're a bit stuck, bending buckles on them, if you're using metal buckles, Ski bindings, you might need to fix. The screwdriver on a multi-tool might be useful for adjusting as well, depending on the, on the ski binding. Um, traditional Telemark um, ski bindings, uh, there's a lot of metal on there. Having uh, pliers and a screwdriver is very, very useful. Also, if you're using things like snow machines, fixing um, elements of those, even just getting spark plugs in and out, um, on the two-stroke machines can be you know, made much easier with a multi-tool. So 
I think they're generally useful to have um, in, in winter uh, under most circumstances. And then in summer, I find them particularly useful on canoe trips where you may be needing to fix something. You may have broken a seat, you may break a thwart, you may need to get hold of a bolt to pull it through. The seat bolts are generally quite long. Um, you may need to, to lash something as a temporary fixing with some wire. And again, the wire cutters there are useful. Screwdriver, particularly Phillips screwdriver, it's typically the double slotted screws on a lot of canoe bolts. They're very, very useful to have a Phillips screwdriver. So again, they're in my fixing kit, my maintenance kit. I've got a small adjustable spanner as well and some spare bolts and duct tape and zip ties. That all goes together and it's very, very useful in those circumstances. Would I take it just um, as that without a knife? Probably not. Um, the blades generally on the multi-tools are not great quality. You know, if you think about what you might pay for a good quality pocket knife, um, you don't pay much more or maybe even less for a decent Leatherman. Um, and that's got lots of different functionality. So you're not gonna get a blade that's as good a quality um, tool, a good quality edge as you are paying for a dedicated even folding knife. Um, and then you've always got the inherent weakness with folding knives, even when they're locking generally in wilderness situations, particularly when a Leatherman's gonna be really, really useful to fix things, I'm gonna want a strong, robust knife, belt knife with me as well. So I think, I can't think of any circumstances where I might have a Leatherman and not um, a strong belt knife, but a Leatherman's a really important tool, particularly when you've got things like toboggans, uh, snow machines, snowshoes, skis to fix or maintain, or canoes to fix. Um, very, very useful in those circumstances. I wouldn't be without one. So good question. Next question, question number two, comes from Bastian. Bastian, and he asks, how do you keep the midget, midgets, <laughs> I think you mean midges, midgets are small people. Um, how do you keep the midges and bugs away while sleeping under a tarp? Do you pack a bug net or a bivy with netting? Thanks for your advice, Bastian. Well, you're welcome, Bastian. Thanks for asking. Um, typically, I like to be, I think I talked about this in the previous episode, I like to be under a tarp, on the ground, in the open air, you know, with fresh air, when it's appropriate and it works. Um, clearly, if there's lots of biting insects around, that's then problematic. Um, it depends what you, you mean by lots of. We get some midges here where, where I am at the moment. We get some mosquitoes occasionally in the summer, um, but then they're not disease carrying. They're not particularly um, much of a pest. And I find that I generally, if I just put something over my head at night, even sleeping out in the open, it's not too bad. That said, um, Northern Scandinavia, Canada, you, you'd get eaten absolutely alive you'd, you'd be uh, you know swollen up with moose bumps effectively with uh, with mosquito bites or black fly bites um, and you need some sort of protection so yeah a bug net at, at the minimum and in Scotland as well the midges are absolutely appalling when they're bad um, 
I remember sleeping in a bivy bag one night and it's a double hooped bivy bag with a, with a net on it actually, double hooped bivy bag um, that has two little poles in it, like a little bivy tent. And I woke up um, north of Glencarron one evening. Uh, well, I'd slept there one evening. I woke up one morning. It was gonna be a glorious day in June, but it sounded like it was raining. And I was like, I don't get this. I got up for a pee about three o'clock in the morning. It was clear sky. Now it's not that much later than that because it was the middle of the summer and it got light early and it sounds like it's raining. That doesn't make sense. The forecast for the week was good. And I took a little peek outside and it was just the volume of midges, tiny, tiny, tiny little biters, what some people call noceums, tiny, tiny little biting insects. The volume on the outside of this single layer Gore-Tex bivy tent sounded like rain, just taking off and landing. Just if you were lying out in that, you'd, you'd just be covered. You'd be black with the covering of these flies. They would just cover every inch of you. It would be appalling. Um, I just stayed in my little bivy tent until the sun hit the bivy tent. They don't like the heat. They don't like the dry. They dissipate at that point. Um, but yeah, you need some protection. Same in mozzie country. You need some protection. You need, you can get bug nets that you hang up on the tarps. They work very well. You get bug nets that you can put around hammocks. They work very well or use a tent. Um, a tent, if you've got a tent where you can pitch the inner on its own, that's a bug net. You know, it's a sealed, you know, they have mozzie nets on the doors. Um, you don't always need the outer. That is a portable bug net um, that sits um, on its own. And again, that works very well, even in hot conditions. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the fly over the top and that keeps the insects away. So those are my general recommendations. You just have to look at what's likely um, in the conditions and not leave yourself open to having a horrendous time if you get it slightly wrong. Again, a little while ago, we did a trip in Canada, our blood vein trip, and we run that at the beginning of September because most of the mosquitoes are usually dead by then. But this year, there were still quite a lot of mosquitoes around and we needed some we needed bug suits in the first week of the trip to keep the mozzies off in the evenings because they were a little bit of a problem they weren't at june middle of june uh, problematic stages where they're just like a pestilence on the land but there were still plenty of them around and they were still a bit of an issue so again you just need to be prepared if you think there might be some mozzies just make sure you've got some way of protecting yourself pack a mozzie net as well uh, pack a bug suit in areas where that might be appropriate as well as your sleeping kit and then you're going to be protected as much as you can be. Next question comes from Neil Beatty. Neil asks, uh, will you ever consider running any courses up north? <laughs> I take it you mean up north in the UK? Um, yeah, I would love to run some courses up north, um, particularly if people don't want to travel down here. Um, you know, we run a lot of courses in Sussex because it's a great place to teach people a wide range of bushcraft skills in a relatively short period of time. We've got a broad range of tree species, particularly on the site where we teach. We've got uh, a lot of native species. We've got planted conifers on the other side of the estate from all over the world. So we can teach people a wide range of tree and plant identification. Um, some of it's heavy clay soil, some of it's much more sandy and um, depending where on this land you are. So it's a, it's a really, really good place to teach. Um, and there's a lot of different resources here in a relatively compact area. But 
Would I like to teach a course in Scotland on a regular basis? Yeah, I'd love to. Would I like to teach a course somewhere in the north of England? Yes, I would love to. At the end of the day, um, Neil, it's about, it, it's about what we can afford to do. Um, we've got a good base here. Um, we have equipment that we use, uh, that we have available for people on the courses. And um, if we were to start running courses elsewhere in the country, we'd have to transport that. We would have to have a base to work from. We'd have to have a relationship with an, a, a landowner. And the, the interesting thing is, um, I think I've talked about approaching landowners before on this, uh, on this show, and I've certainly written about um, building up a relationship with landowners so that you can practice bushcraft yourself. But even as a company or as a bushcraft school that offers bushcraft training and, and wilderness skills training, we have to, we can't just waltz around and saying, all right, we'll use this land. We have to approach people. We have to come to some sort of commercial arrangement. And people are sometimes wary of damage they, that were an unknown entity to them. And for us to come along and say, we'll do a week or two weeks, it might not just it just might not be worth their the, the effort for them to you know they've got plenty to do as an estate or as a landowner then they've got this person who's saying can i come and run some bushcraft courses on your land and by the way i want access to this several hundred acres of woodland or whatever it is and i only want to come for two weeks of the year and we're going to do these things that you don't understand and um and we might set fire to things um in a controlled way but we'll have some fires and we're going to have people chopping some things down and we're going to pick some flowers and pick some plants and dig a few things up um, people get a little bit funny about that and if it's not worth a while financially if you if you said right i'm going to come for six months and we're going to pay you this over the course of the year they go okay well that's worth my while looking at so it's always a difficult one because you you're not known and um equally uh, it might not be worth a while for them to get to know you if you like. So finding places that are also good for teaching bushcraft that have the range of resources. There's lots of places where you can go and have a fire and camp, of course, but we want to teach people a broader range of skills as possible. And uh, we want to be able to give people value for money in that way. We also therefore need to find somewhere that's really good to teach a wide range of bushcraft skills where the landowners are amenable and they're happy for us to go there once or twice a year. Um, you know, if we were to move to running a course in the north or running a course in Scotland, that's the difficulty we face. And then I've got to find the time to approach lots of landowners as well. And frankly, um, I have approached a couple in Scotland. It hasn't really amounted to anything for various reasons. Um, so if there's anybody out there, um, any landowners out there who are looking for uh, bushcraft, good quality, top bushcraft schools to go and run courses from their estate, um, in the north of England or in Scotland, get in touch, paul at frontierbushcraft.com and um, I'll be happy to hear from you. And then maybe, Neil, um, we can uh, run a few things up north for those of you that uh, would like to learn in, in those places. Because I appreciate people like to learn the skills close to where they're going to be living and close to be close to where they're going to be using the skills as well. I appreciate that. I'm from the Northeast originally. I was born in Yorkshire. I spent a lot of time living in County Durham. Um, it's a different environment to down here in Sussex, but I can teach more here than I can in a lot of places in the Northeast. I'd have to find very specific places. There's some fantastic places in the Northeast that I could teach, but I'd have to get access to them. And that's always the problem. Right. Next question from Anders. 
Anders Jensen. Um, ah, right, okay, I remember. There's two questions here from two different people, and it's a very, very similar question, so I'll answer them at the same time, um, a bit like I did with the hammock question a, a, a while ago. Um, so Anders asks, I've run into a bit of a problem. Uh, the problem is that when I don't use my gear and equipment, I used to just put it somewhere in my room and it just stands there and absorbs dust and things like that. Uh, I would like to give it the longest lifetime as possible, but I don't know where to keep it when I'm not using it. And I don't really have a cupboard to store it in. How do you store your equipment? Anders from Denmark. And he also says, it's good to see so many new videos. Thanks for that. Well, you're very welcome, Anders. And thank you for the question. I've also got a question from Eddie, Eddie George. I'm assuming it's not the ex-governor of the Bank of England, <laughs> but it may be. Um, but uh, sorry if that's a bad joke that you've heard lots of times, Eddie. Um, so Eddie asks, thank you so much for replying. So I replied to a previous question. As you know, um, da -da -da -da, I'd be happy for you to answer this on your show. And his question was um, very similar to Anders' question. I wanted to know how and where you store your kit when not in use, i.e. what's the best way to store a sleeping bag, etc. Just thought it would be an interesting subject to tackle as and not a lot of info regarding looking after kit, which is not a knife or an axe. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, love the blog and your videos, really informative. Cheers, Eddie. Well, again, like Anders, you're very, very welcome. Thanks for the feedback on the blogs and the videos. Um, that kind of feedback just makes it worthwhile for me. If I know people are getting value from this, that's great and, I, and it motivates me to get out and, and do more of this. So to answer your question, guys, in general, first off, my kit, my, my general kit isn't in storage very long. As I've said on previous episodes, I'm outdoors a lot. My, my basic baseline stuff gets used an awful lot, particularly from spring through till late autumn before I switch into more specialist winter kit. Um, so it doesn't get, it, the, my issue is just keeping it in, in good order um, so that it works. It's not that it's gathering dust or that it's getting moth-eaten or it's um, rusting. It's just keeping things sharp, keeping things polished, making sure things are washed, making sure things are well-maintained, making sure things are stitched up when they need to, making sure that seams are replaced when they need resealing, all of those sorts of things. So that, that's kind of me in terms of my, my issues. Um, but I do understand where you're coming from. Um, I haven't always done this full time. And I remember when I was younger, I, had, I lived in a, a, a really small kind of box room almost, if you like. And I had my outdoor kit in the corner. Um, and I, and it was, a lot of it was packed into rucksacks and I, I understand exactly where you, and it all gets dusty and then you move it and the dust comes up and you're sneezing and it's, it's kind of unpleasant. Um, and that was with Hoover, just in case my mum's watching this, I did Hoover, honest, but it's, you know, you still build up dust on, on it on surfaces you can't clean. Um, and yeah, and it's not great. You know, somebody mentioned specifically, Eddie mentioned specifically about sleeping bags. It's not great to have sleeping bags compressed. So keeping sleeping bags in rucksacks isn't a great idea. Um, they lose their loft, particularly down bags lose their loft. You've got to keep them um, lofted if you like, but even synthetic bags don't do well if you keep them compressed all the time. Even in the compression stuff sacks that they come in, they should be stored slightly bigger than that. Um, good quality down bags come with something that looks like a big pillowcase with a draw cord at the top or a mesh bag. Store them in that. Um, 
I have um, in my in my office, um, which is also uh, uh, part of my house. Um, there's a wardrobe, and in the top of that wardrobe, I keep my sleeping bags, and I got the down bags there um, open in the storage bags and um, that's how they, they should be kept. Um, so that's, that's what you should do there if you can. Um, more generally, I think what's really, really useful to have, um, and they've become more available in recent years, are those storage boxes which stack. And I don't mean the cheap flimsy ones which break easily. I mean the really sturdy plastic storage boxes which stack on top of each other. I use those for storing my kit that I don't use so often. So some of my winter kit um, that gets used for winter expeditions, some of my canoeing kit that, you know, I'd probably spend a couple of months of the year, if I add up all the weeks, probably a couple of months of the year paddling, but the rest of the year there, um, you know, that stuff isn't in use. So once it's dried, it needs to be stored somewhere. And so, um, and also I've got things like winter mountaineering kit, which doesn't even get used every winter these days, I have to say, I have to admit. Um, you know, so things like crampons and winter boots and, and, and ice axes and things like that. Um, so these stackable, um, stackable boxes are really good. And then you can organize stuff as well. You can put things in, in and away. They're not gonna get crushed. You can pile things on top of each other so they don't take a lot of uh, footprint, but you can have the stuff, you can label each box and say what's in them and you can take them on and off and get into them as you need to. So that would be my recommendation. Try and store stuff clean store it dry and um, try and have your sleeping bags open um, in, in the sense that they're not completely compressed. Um, put a bit of oil on your, on your tools and uh, pop them in a box when you're not using them and then it's all good to go. The other thing that I do with um, the stuff that I use regularly, there are things that I take out pretty much, another big plane going over there, I don't know if you can hear it, um, I'll just talk over the top of it. One of the things that I do um, for the kit that I'm always taking with me pretty much anywhere in the world, any time of the year, so my real core kit, things like knife, folding saw, pocket knife, sharpening stone, pocket first aid kit, metal mug, water bottle, spoon, those sorts of things that I'm going to have with me anywhere when I go anywhere, um, any time of the year, sorry, anywhere. Um, I've got a set of those drawers that a lot of people have in garages or people have for storing their kids' toys. And I have a drawer that just has those things in, just in there, so that when I go, I just open the drawer and everything in that drawer comes out. Um, then I have another drawer with stuff in it that I sometimes take, I often take, don't always take. You know, for example, I might not take it on a day walk, but I might take it if I'm coming out to the woods for a week. I'll take those things, you know, so that might be things like my larger first aid kit. Um, it might be a second water bottle. It might be a cooking pot. Um, you know, those things that I'm going to have with me pretty much all the time, certainly from spring through till late autumn, if I'm coming out in my home turf, if you like, they're all in the next drawer and I can take those. Um, so being organized, I find with my kit is, is useful as well, as well as storing it so it doesn't get damaged, it doesn't degrade. I think storing it in a way that you can access it easily is also a good thing to aim for. So have it labeled, have a system, appreciate not everybody's got a lot of room. I don't have a lot of room to store my stuff. Um, so being organized with it and having access to it is good. And then the stuff that you don't use so frequently, use those storage boxes because they work really, really well. So hopefully that helps guys. Um, thank you for the question.
All right, this is the last question for today. And um, it's quite a wide ranging one. Um, it's from Billy and Billy asks, Hi Paul, I know you've written an article on finding a place to practice bushcraft in the UK. And if you haven't seen that, if you're interested in it, link in the show notes. And remember, where are the show notes? The show notes are on my blog, not on YouTube, on my blog. My, the blog is my hub, if you like, that's where all the information is. And there's a link to my blog underneath the YouTube if you want to go over to my blog. And also, if you're listening to this on, um, on SoundCloud or elsewhere, go to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk, find the episode, all the episodes are listed, find the episode, and all the show notes and links are there, you know, articles, photos, other episodes, podcasts, you know, there has to be a way of having a centralized hub for all of those things, and that's where you're going to find it. So go over there, and if you're not signed up for my email, um, updates please do sign up when you're over there um, because that means that you're going to be the first to hear about any articles any podcasts any Ask Paul Kirtley episodes anything else that I put on my blog and as I say that's the central hub for all the information that I put out you're going to be the first to know as well as sometimes there are special offers and competitions I don't run competitions very often because I, I don't always have the time but if I'm going to run a competition you're going to hear about it there and um, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm running special trainings or online seminars, all those sorts of things. You're going to find out via my, uh, my mailing list. So please go over there, sign up. I don't spam people. I'm only going to send you stuff that I would be interested in myself. That's the stuff that I send out to people. All right. So Billy asks, I've written this article about finding places in the UK to practice, but I was wondering if you could recommend a place in the world where I could practice all aspects of bushcraft, legally and without permission. By this I mean wild camping, open fires, building shelters and camp items, fishing, hunting for my own food or even somewhere where it would be possible to live self-sufficiently from the land. I know there must be places in the boreal forest where this is possible, but it's obviously a huge place and I don't really know where to start looking. Thanks a lot, Billy. Well, that's a big question, Billy. I, I know where you're getting at there. Have that ultimate freedom to go out, live off the land. Um, there, there are places where you can do that. Um, boreal forest is a, good, <laughs> is a good guess. It is a big place, you're right. It's the second largest biome on the planet. It's a, you know, the, the, it, it constitutes some of the largest areas of forest on the planet. The Siberian part of the boreal forest is the largest single piece of forest on the planet. Um, so yeah it's it's uh there's a lot of scope there but you know even the most remote places you'd be surprised have rules and regulations i'm not saying everywhere does but there might be places where um you can go and shoot to hunt relatively easily but the fishing regulations are quite strict a lot of canada you need a fishing license um, I can't think of anywhere where I've been in Canada where you don't need a fishing license to fish. Um, they're quite strict on it. And, um, you know, you'd have thought, well, it's plentiful, it doesn't matter. Well, you, you do. Um, where I would say, if you really, really want to go somewhere where there aren't many rules, I'd say you'd look at the Russian or Siberian part of um, the boreal forest. I would say 
you might look at some native reserves in North America where the rules are different. You probably still have to go out with, with a native to do some of the things like, like netting. So for example, my friend Norm Dequise on the Dequise Reserve on the French River, um, he can net fish. He doesn't net fish very often, but he can net fish. If I was to do that as a white man, even if I was a Canadian citizen, I'd get arrested. Um, so, you know, there, there are some rights which um, Aboriginal people, First Nations people, native people have that you can't do if you're not a native person. Um, it doesn't mean to say there are no rules and reg regulations around it. Um, and frankly, I I'd say you would be well off going and learning from those people because they're going to know that if anybody knows that environment they're going to know um, the fish species or the prey species better than you are as an outsider. Um, got a fly in my mouth. Excuse me. Um, so they're going to know that better than an outsider is. Um, but um, in terms of fires and camping and, and wild camping and foraging um, northern Sweden uh, or Sweden in general is a good place to go. They've got a very uh, enlightened approach to outdoors uh, living, uh, free loves live um, and I think you should embrace that, um, do it respectfully, you've got to do it in the way that they do it and not leave a mess um, and use your cutting tools well um, and not leave you know uh, things half chopped and half burned and you know that's what gets people irritated you know one of the great things I find about hiking and camping in Sweden is that it, clearly it's a big place with a relatively small population to some countries but still it looks very untouched in a lot of ways um, but in terms of hunting there hunting is 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 regulated quite highly they've got a very good uh, system of hunt, hunter education and training and testing but you can't just pick up a rifle and go shoot there even though a lot of the other things are, are relatively easy to do um, and uh, although the fishing is a bit easier there same in Norway great fishing um, but uh, and, and hunting is possible but again it's it's controlled it's regulated um, so I think pretty much anywhere that you can go where you're going to get access to firearms and fishing equipment and those sorts of things. There's some regulation around it and, and rightly so. Um, unless you go into some really, you know, unless you want to go into the depths of some parts of Africa um, where there are fewer rules um, and that could also have some issues for your personal safety. Um, I think you're better off sticking to places where you can do most of what you want and then find people that can help you with firearms licenses or fishing licenses or take you out and guide you um, where, where you can do that. There's, there's very few places I can think of where you can just turn up and you've got carte blanche to do what you want unless you're right out there um, on the edge of, um, on what's still the edge of civilization if you like. And civilization I put in um, inverted commas as I always do. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's very, very difficult because, you know, it, it's not it's not about control, it's not about money. A lot of it's about respect for the environment. And you have to go a long, long way these days where there isn't some sort of respect for the environment and using the natural resources that are there. You know, fishing licenses with attached quotas are there for a reason. They're not there to, to generate huge amounts of money, although I guess they do generate some income, but they're largely there to preserve fish stocks. Uh, same with hunting licenses, there are quotas um, around hunting um, 
to preserve game and wildlife and, and to preserve ecosystems um, and that's that's rightly so because we've seen in the past what happens when those things are not done i mean look at the buffalo in north america for example um, so uh, or wolf populations in certain parts of the world um, you need to have some control over those things otherwise people just you know they they, they people are very bad at looking at the big picture um, unless they're put in a position where they're responsible for looking at the big picture. Individuals, however much we care, we tend to look at our own thing and we don't look at the overall, it's very difficult to look at the overall impact because we don't have all the information. So there needs to be some more centralized looking at all the information and they, they can say, right, you're allowed to take this much. You're allowed to hunt in this area, but not this area. You're allowed to hunt in this season, but not that season. And, and rightly so, that's the best, if we're, if we're going to continue these activities, then that's the best that we can do to, to mitigate the neg potential negative impact of some of those things. So, um, yeah, look, look far into the boreal forest and you will, you'll find some freedom, but you're going to have to, you're going to, have to look hard. Um, and any comments from people, you know, if you're, if you're living in a place where you can, you can do all of those things and you're happy to have a guest, um, then, uh, then uh, drop us a line underneath on the, on the YouTube or better still on the comments under my blog, under this on my blog, uh, drop some comments there for Billy, let him know where he might go and have a, have a look. And I don't want flights of fancy, I want people who are actually living or have or do visit an area where they can pretty much do what they like in the context of what Billy's talking about. You know, I know of some places in the boreal forest where you can do some of these things. Um, let us know, you know, it's a learning experience. Um, clearly you might want to protect those places for yourself or, you know, just for the sake of the environment, that's fine. Um, but if you want to share, please do in the comments under my blog. Right, um, the light is getting a bit low here. Um, we've got a few evening flights. I'm not very far away from Gatwick here where I am at the moment and we get the flights coming over sometimes and tonight is one of those nights where air traffic control have sent the flights over this way and we've got a few planes. So um, that's the end of the show for now and the next one will be up soon. So thanks for watching. Keep the questions coming in. Keep uh, looking at my blog for the next episodes or YouTube, remember subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're not a subscriber and sign up for my email updates if you don't get those. Um, it really helps me tell you when all the good stuff is coming out. So thanks for watching, take care, see you soon.